Blog Talk Radio. like yourself, like my guest, me. And I am your host, spiritual advisor and groove mistress, Madam Perry. But you can call me Jan, Jennifer, JP, Perry. You don't have to call me Madam. I am happy to be here, and I am so grateful to everyone. Oh, my goodness, I think my guest is calling in on a different phone. So I am going to give her a ring. But anyway, I was going to say... uh, my guest tonight, you probably know, fabulous Beth Lapidus, and everybody's asking about it. So I um, am going to play some music by uh, someone who has been a guest on here several times, Mr. Bruce Sudano. Everybody's feeling out there on a limb. Running from the devil at the will of the wind Stranded in the jungle, lives are on the line Overwhelmed by everything And just not enough time But you can't look at the mountain When you're reaching for the sky Can't look at the mountain So up too high Cast the mighty shadow mountain when you're reaching for the sky 
cast a mighty shadow Let's no light into your eyes The only way to do it Is one day at a time No, you don't look at the mountain When you're reaching for the sky You can leave messages here for me or for iCabaret, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Thanks. What a day. I just need some me time for once. Yes, perfect. I got the new bath bombs today. Peach and clove, here we come. Mim and the Anvil makes the best smelling herbal blends of bath bombs. You can order loose or ground herb, added buttermilk, extra large, even ones with hidden gifts inside. There are over 25 essential oil varieties. After today, my body definitely needs some spiritual nourishment and lots of fizz. Her metaphysical blends are soothing in more ways than one. Visit MimInTheAnvil.com today. Make time for yourself. There are over 100 herbal blends of bath bombs. Keep a healthy body and mind. Feed your soul. Visit MimInTheAnvil.com today. If you don't make time for I mean, the world has gone crazy, right? I mean, this whole pandemic, I, I, I don't even know if I'm coming or going anymore. You know what I mean? But the one thing during the pandemic that I found out, right, that was a good thing, was the Madam Parcel. I mean, this podcast, right, when you hear her laughing, all you want to do is laugh, right? When her dog's barking in the background, and she's talking to the dog, I'm like, she's going to an interview, and I'm like, this podcast is the best podcast I've ever heard before. You know what I mean? I did. Oh, wow. Hey. That's right. I brought in the rainforest. I already had my fake Sebastian Maniscalco promo for the show. Really does a good job. Wow. I know. <laughs> he does pretty good. Um, until I can afford people like you, I have to hire the, uh, the, the lookalikes or the soundalikes. Which is what 
I used to do. Anyway, so here we are. Um, by the way, let me mention to everybody that, yeah, uh, last week's show was very popular with Peggy Etra. She's a, a puppeteer, regular on The Barbarian and the Troll and The Henson's Puppet Up. Uh, and she's done a lot of work on TV shows, as we said. Also, Brandy Stillwell. Look, none of this is going according to plan, and you probably know her comic book, Sasquatch Detective. And uh, coming back very soon will be D.C. Glenn, also DC, known as D.C., the Brain Supreme from Tag Team, or the Sprinkles Guy from the Geico commercials. <laughs> and he's also on the TV show uh, Games People Play on BET. But anyway, tonight, one of my favorite, favorite people, one of millions of people's favorite person is here Uh uh, I, I don't know where to start. She's an actor, a comedian, coach, teacher, producer, author, and I'm going to bring her, just just introduce her right now, the fabulous Beth Lapidus. Beth, welcome back to Madam Perry Salon. Hello. Thanks for having me. I am thrilled to have you here, and I'm thrilled that you've come back. Um, I've been listening to your new book. So you need to decide. Yeah. Oh, there is, you know, there is not a wasted second on there. Every second of, uh, listen, on the audible, uh, every second is valuable. In fact, I've hit that 15 minutes rewind. I mean, 15 second rewind button so many times. Oh, that's so sweet. I love to hear that. Well, I've even, I think I even wrote down some quotes from that I wanted to say that I was telling someone uh, about earlier today. But anyway, that's, that's one thing we're going to be talking about tonight since that's a brand new book. And um, Yeah, awesome. And, of course, you're the uh, critically acclaimed creator of Uncabaret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am. It's true. It's true. <laughs> It's the truth. It's all. It's the honest to goodness truth. Um, <laughs> you know, I've heard you say this before in uh, interviews, and uh, I've read it. But I want you to uh, tell where the name Uncabaret came from. The name Uncabaret, which is, I admit, uh, like it sounds so negative, but it's really a positive. Um, I was doing a show at a place called the Women's Building, downtown Los Angeles, and at the meet and greet afterwards, you know, I was like, you know, it wasn't quite as funny as you thought it was, when was the last time you laughed? And they were like, oh, we don't laugh, we're women, we're artists, and we're lesbians, and if we go to comedy clubs, they just make fun of us. And I oh. said, I'm going to make you a show. It's going to be unhomophobic, unxenophobic, unmisogynist. It'll be uncabaret. And I really, it was like a download. I don't know really where it came from. So I can only assume it was an assignment from the above. And, um, and I have stuck with it. I mean, you know, I talk in the book about that was sort of the moment, but that there's always a whole life behind these instantaneous decisions like I talk about Malcolm Gladwell has his book Blink which I think Mm -hmm. is so brilliant and has really helped us define a kind of knowingness when you just sort of know instantaneously and gut knowing and all that intuitive knowledge that we do kind of discount 
that there's a blinking of first impression, a love at first sight, a hate at first sight, all this stuff that uh, um, comes with this idea of blink. But I think that there should be a compendium volume, which I don't think he has ever written, called Stare. Because before you blink, there's a lot of looking at things and thinking about things and, you know, getting the knowledge and filling yourself up with what it is you become in order to blink. And I talk a lot in the book. I tell the story really about becoming the person who was able to blink in that moment and uh, make that decision to do that. I mean, you know, two things. One, I said that and then I actually did it. You know, you can say something like that and, you know never the next thing happens. But Mm -hmm. um, I really was looking for a better way. I, you know, had been practicing stand-up for some time. I'd come from New York. I was in L.A. for a few years, and I really was not loving the way it was here. Um, I There was, you know, sort of the nadir of that experience was being at the comedy store and following Andrew Dice Clay, and I'm mm. backstage and, you know, waiting to go on, and he's killing, and the audience is loving it, and I'm hating him for his misogynist material, and I'm hating the audience for loving it and laughing at it, and I'm hating myself for hating everyone, and I don't do well with hate, and I got on stage and froze. I mean, now I would know how to, how much more evolved, I would know how to, you know, alchemize that kind of emotion into a different experience, I wouldn't necessarily be in judgment, um, but I wasn't at that place, you know, when I was in my late 20s, or early 30s, I wasn't there yet, and um, and I just, you know, I just had an awful set and I just kept thinking, you know, there's got to be a better way. And that line kind of ran through my brain like a ticker tape from that moment on. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. But like, what is it? So I was mm-hmm. really looking for something. And at a certain point also with that sentence in my head, I kind of, you know, our early childhoods and our family, that stuff doesn't determine our lives, but it does sort of give us the beginning of a shape of how we think and who we are. And there was, I, I was in the hospital when I was five for a couple of months with a blood disease. And there was one point um, in in that experience where sitting in the hallway, I always felt fine. I didn't feel sick so I could play and I could do shit and I wasn't in bed. And I was in the hallway sort of looking in a room where kids were playing and they were playing with hypodermic needles, like the shells and they were playing doctor. And I just thought not the needle needles, but just like the, the leftovers. Yeah. The safe part. And I was just thinking like, I wasn't thinking, oh, you know, this is role play and everybody's like working out their, you know, feelings, which is what ha- was happening. I was so unin touch with my feelings. I was like, there, why, why are we playing doctor? There's got to be a better game. We, why can't we play house? Anything else but doctor? You know, just like running, running so far from my feelings. And, um, and But I realized sort of when I had this idea of there's got to be a better way about comedy, I don't know. I just sort of 
it was, I just sort of remembered that hospital memory and how I never had gone in the room to suggest a different game. And I just got it all of a sudden. Like, if you want it to be different, like, you can't be complaining about it. You just have to make it different. Like, if you think it should be different, then you're the one who should make it different. Because a lot of people seem, like, pretty happy with how it is. And so it was sort of those three. And I, I think we oversimplify our lives. And we sometimes tend to oversimplify our lives and overcomplicate decisions because of it. That, um, you know, it was these three things. This, the hospital was the first act of that decision. Then, you know, a lot of gigs, you know, culminating in this Andrew Dice Clay gig. And then this moment of sort of inspiration and revelation where I get the idea, you know, on Cabaret. So these three, this was like a three-beat decision and starting when I'm five and ending, you know, when I'm a young adult uh, at the women's building. And so I really, um, I like to tell that in all three parts of the story because it really shows how deep and long it can take to make a decision. Sometimes the decisions are like years in the making and we don't even realize it. So mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of that. So we're... Some people might say, um, yeah, I really don't like that. You know, somebody should do something different. Uh, you said, well, I'll do something different. You know, I'll make it different. Because you know, sometimes with thoughts like that, you know that if if you feel that way and feel that strongly, you're not the only one. Like, that's my experience a lot, that people will say sometimes, well, if, if it bothers me or if I like this, I can't be the only one. You know. Well, you might be the only one, but <laughs> there's no way to find out unless you try it. I mean, I mean, you know, sometimes you are the only one and sometimes you're the first one. So there's no one yet. And it's not until you say it. But, you know, that doesn't even matter because it could have happened that I did this and it didn't resonate and I could have gone on to do something else. But and maybe in an alternate universe, it did happen that way. Who knows? But um, in this universe, the one that I'm remembering and talking about now, it did happen and unfold in a way that, but it still wasn't 100% clear. It wasn't like, oh, I did the first show and, you know, there was no, you still have to, you know, you have to believe in it enough to fight for it. And, um, you know, the first show we did was super fun and, you know, people came and sold out. So what? It's this tiny room in downtown New you know, L.A., and, then, and I did a few shows there. All I knew was that I wanted it to be different at that point. Then they lost their funding, and then um, I moved the show to Highways, which is a performance space in Santa Monica, and I did uh, a couple of months of late Saturday nights there with Taylor Negron and Judy Toll, both R.I.P., who really helped form the sort of DNA. I mean, I think of it also, even once we did the show that there were like the beginning had to do with like, there was a, there was a insemination, there was a gestation and there was a birth and, you know, the women's building, it's funny to call it insemination, which has so much to do with the male part of that agenda. But why can't we call it something else? I don't know. But I mean, why can't it be, why can't it be about the, you know, the egg ovulamization or something? But anyway, you know, it was the inception would be a good word. It was the, the inception of it. And then, it, there was a gestation period at highways where 
the, the, the DNA was formed and, you know, that had to do with storytelling and it had to do, you know, at first it was just like something different. We don't know total experimentation that, you know, with knowing that there's an audience because, you know, I can say a lot about what happened with the art and why I was, you know, uh, inspired to, you know, evolve the stand-up comedy art form. But, you know, a big part of it is an audience and the audience being hungry for this. And the women's building really showed me that that was true. Then at Highways, uh, that was equally true. But also we started to understand what I meant when I said on Cabaret that it was about storytelling, that it was about a kind of esoterica, it was about, uh, con- you know, Judy was the most confessional comedian, and that was very new right then. And, you know, I had a certain sort of poeticness, as did Taylor. I had a lot of big ideas. Taylor was very grounded in L.A. There was an inside show business thing that Taylor had. A lot of the things that became part of what, you know, could be called our brand or our style or our, you know, what we were identified as really started highways. But um, that's, that ended, I, I stopped to run my campaign to make first lady an elected position. And when I came back, I was like, started to look for somewhere to do the show because I knew I really wanted to bring it back. And, um, and then Jean-Pierre, I mean, there's always so many pieces. I mean, mm. I can't emphasize this enough. You know, I am the through line. Okay, so fine. I am on Cabaret in a certain way. But without, like, so many different people, on Cabaret doesn't exist. And almost everything that's sort of wonderful, except for, you know, the tiniest of things, even that um, – you know, is always a lot of people. So Jean-Pierre Boccaro, who people will know as the incredible nightclub artistic impresario who had Lassa Club and Largo and then Luna Park, was opening Luna Park, and he called me to see if I wanted to do a show. And I said I had, you know, this idea to bring on Cabaret, and he was like, well, it'd be funny. And I said, ha-ha, no. And, you know, he booked it um, for three Sunday nights. And the Sunday thing was very... Uh, was very um, serendipitous. I mean, I didn't think about the fact that Sunday would be important, and it ended up being. And we booked it for three nights, and it ran from the week he opened that club to the week he closed that club. And during that time, we filmed a, um, we filmed a Comedy Central special. We did two, ra- you know, year-long radio shows. We put out albums. Uh, we did we we had one of the first online shows. We did spin-off shows called The Other Network and Say the Word. Those both became their own brands. We launched so much talent, and we're also a home to people who are reinventing themselves. Bob Odenkirk, Julie Sweeney. Um, both came back after Saturday Night Live. Meryl Marco, who had been head writer of the David Letterman show, uh, started working with us. Kathy Griffin came from the Groundlings. There were a lot. There's a big drift over from the Groundlings, people who had been doing character work, who wanted to tell stories. They were natural-born storytellers. There was Kathy Griffin, Julia Sweeney, Tim Bagley, uh, Mike McDonald, uh, just a, a that those Judy kind of brought those people because she had been a groundling. Um, and it was really, you know, it was a group forming. I mean, there was, I mean, Uncabaret has included many people who were not in that original Luna Park group, but that group itself was movie, you know, filmic in its uh, bondedness and uh, was a very, you know, it was a time before we even had HBO Sunday nights. So there was really, it was the game, you know, it was the game and it was the most exciting thing because what was happening in the comedy clubs besides what I named in the unmisogynist, unxenophobic, un, um, 
unhomophobic thing. There was also a thing that was happening where the comedy clubs were super focused on the tight 10 and your tight 10 set. And you did the set over and over and over again until it had no air left in it because you were trying to get your holding deal. Cause you were trying to get your sitcom cause you were trying to make your, you know, you, and there was so much money in it. I mean, people were really working for the stand up money. I mean, at this point, stand up has devolved and, you know, everybody has access to everything and there are no development deals. It's an, it's a hundred percent different landscape than it was in uh, the late eighties, early nineties when this is what was happening. I mean, at the same time, you've got the Nirvana situation happening and the same thing is happening in music where it's a little bit, you know, well, we'll, we'll do our own show. I mean, I was like, I don't need a comedy club. We're going to make a comedy show in a music club. That's going to be and I'm not the first person, obviously, to have done a, a, you know, a show in a music venue that's a comedy show. And always, and I always like to say, you know, I wasn't also the first person who was like, we need more stories. You know, there's always been a strain of storytelling in comedy, and comedy's gone back and forth. There's always been a braid. You know, at the same time, you've got the cast skills and the, you know, Borscht comedians. You've also got Lenny Bruce, you know, and you've also got storytellers. And, you've got, you know, it's a, they, it's a woven, you know, it's a woven textural thing. But at the time the storytelling strain had really minimized people were looking for their taglines and they were looking for, you know, character, you know, really flattened one dimensional character stuff, you know, because the laugh meter would be running in the comedy club so hard that you could only do like a one line setup. You could only do like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm so fat. I'm Jewish. I'm single. I'm divorced. I'm horny. I'm Southern. You know, it's like mm-hmm. to get to the punchline as fast as you had to, and to have a three dimensional situation and stories that were in the now. So what happened was, we ended up having, and it was hard to get an audience. It didn't really click immediately. I was trying to drag friends to Luna Park, and people were like, I hate stand-up. And I'd be like, it's not like that. I promise. <laughs> it's fun. And but slowly but surely, you know, we got people starting to come. And it was fun. So people would come, and they'd be like, oh, my God, this is great. And they'd bring their friends next week because we were running every Sunday. So what started to happen was like, I was like, oh, these are the same people who were here last week. I mean, not only does it have to be good, it has to be different. So what ended up happening, at the first I just told people, do the material that your head is going to just explode if you don't do this material. Now I would probably say heart or soul, but at that time, head was sort of the best I could get to. And once that happened and once people were doing that, that was always the material that was like most present. So it hadn't been mostly worked out. So there was a mic in the back of the room that was, we ended up calling the back mic, which was like the announcer mic. And I ended up jumping on there just naturally asking people questions in sort of a talk show host kind of way, because I want, I could see someone would be like right next to their hilarious thing but because it was new I mean when you're developing material you you don't always see it immediately so you know it became it was super conversational and part of that was because the audience was there as our partner as our friend as our witnesses it was Sunday night so it was like kind of a spiritual night it was a night that even suits came not in their suits I was really clear it wasn't a showcase it was a show you know so mm-hmm. it became really a thing and 
that's kind of the story of Uncab. I mean, that's, you know, at least how, you know, and then there was a giant piece in the LA Times above the fold yeah. on a Friday, new, new breed of comedy. And then it went from like, we can't fill the room to, you know, we can't, you know, we can't seat everyone and people were having fist fights and, you know, it's always this way, you know, feast or famine, it's not enough, it's too much. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're always trying to, can it just be perfectly full? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I got you there. I do understand. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then on Cabaret, become, uh, when did it become known as or called the alt comedy or the alt comedy revolution that it launched? You know, I sort of think that first, I mean, in, I think it might have, that's a good question. I can't tell you a year, but in that first year when Chuck Christmas Lully, who I always love to call out because he just did the most amazing article. I mean, this was a guy who like came and watched and watched and he has his own story about it, which is that, you know, he had pitched being, you know, covering comedy for the LA Times and was at these clubs watching this stuff. And when he discovered this, you know, I think he was assigned it and he was like, oh my God, this is what I mean, this. <laughs> and um, so for him, it was like, yes, this is what I wanted. To, yes, yes. So, you know, again, it's a match of audience. You know, he was really just the audience. And he came for, I don't know how long, but months maybe watching the show. So it wasn't like he was reviewing a show. He was talking about what the show was. But it, And by that point, there were other shows that were doing you know, not the same thing, but related things. You know, some of it was character stuff. Some of it only happened, you know, once in a while at a coffee house. But there wasn't, like, nothing else like it happening. And um, my partner sort of saw that and sent out a press release, like, this is actually a movement. And that kind of, you know, the press loves a movement because it's real. You know, people want to see, well, what is a trend? Because it's not just that it's a trend, which is an awful word, but it's that what does this mean, culturally speaking? Why is this happening? So somewhere around that article, I don't know if he named it all comedy or if it just became a phrase then. But, he, I mean, different. the word difference was certainly used in that article, and I'm, I'm guessing alternative was also used. Just to uh, go back into a, a little bit, uh, you were were you the first guest star on Sex in the City? I was not, but I was the first guest star on Will and Grace. So I only Will am in, but my entire the entirety of it, except for literally like you have to. I mean, you can't blank. You can't even start to blank, and you miss me. It was like completely cut out because. They it was so early in the series that they still had the fifth. People a lot of people don't remember this. There was a fifth regular character in Will and Grace who was a Southern gentleman and was Will's client, and um, that was a lot of stories to juggle. So there was the four of them plus him to juggle in one episode. Well, every you know, twenty three minutes, um, and so there wasn't a lot of room for my guest star role. <laughs> but I was the host of the club that um Jack. That that Jack did just Jack. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And was that was uh the Southern guy, was that the guy he played the character Harlan? He was Jack's client. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's exactly and he's the nicest guy. So um you know, and it was so great. And I was a guest star on Sex and the City, but I certainly was not the first. Nor the well, last. On Sex and the City, that was not a blink. 
uh, and you'll miss a type. You were <laughs> you were there a lot because um, he was doing the. Uh, was I, I it was a art. fun role. I, it was a great uh, it was a great role, and I'm ever uh, grateful to Michael for putting me in it. Um, the you know the the story of it is that uh, that Sarah Jessica Parker meets uh, that Carrie meets her new love interest who was Barishnikov at a gallery and in the gallery is uh, an art, a performance artist. And that artist's piece was not just based on, but actually they licensed a piece from Marina Abramowitz, uh, the very famous performance artist. And uh, so I played her specifically, and it was a very specific piece where uh, she was up on a loft and she was looking out at the audience and, or the gallery, you know, I guess you don't call an audience, the art viewers. The um, And it was a really intense thing to film because I basically did do her thing, which was, you know, she was trying to change consciousness by looking out and, you know, you're having all this eye contact with people mm-hmm. and what, what happens when that happens and the audience is watching and you're watching the audience. And I, you know, I read the thing about the piece and it was really profound and she's a very mm-hmm. profound artist. Um, and there's like a ladder made of knives on the way up. So you can't really get up there. And, you know, we shot for a long time. It was so much fun. And then they go back a second time. So there's two, two and one of them during the day and one of them's in the middle of the night and it's sort of just them. And um, the the amazing thing for me about that role was I actually started my career in New York as a performance artist. And so, um, (laughs) yeah, so before I was a comedian, I was a touring performance artist. I got NEAs. I did pieces at the kitchen. I um, I performed in a lot of, you know, Institute of Contemporary Art in London and Boston, and I went to colleges and it was visual, and I had slides and music and, you know, the whole multimedia performance artist thing. And then my work sort of also got funny, and then it got kind of more funny, and then I was like, I'm really funny, like, for a performance artist, and I love being funny, and I've always you know, but I was like, I, you know, they don't, it's not like highly valued in the art world. It's not like, oh, my God, she's so funny. And it's like you could be a little funny in the art world, but they're, you're not like writing grants and getting gigs because you're funny. And it's, <laughs> and, I, and I also felt like in the art world, there was like a certain, I really hated being on planes and people would say, what do you do? And I'd be like, I'm a performance artist. And they're like, what do you do? Shove yams up. You know, it's almost like but, people didn't know yeah. what it was. And I didn't want to have to explain it to people. And I guess if I really wanted to do it in my heart, I wouldn't have minded explaining it to people because I've been explaining on cabaret to people for a very long time. <laughs> and I don't seem to mind that. And, um, and so, I, you know, I drifted, I just drifted into comedy clubs and started experimenting with what it would be. I mean, I knew to get really funny and to really understand it, you had to perform a lot more than you could as a, I mean, as a performance artist, you can only do a certain number of shows and the rest of it, you know, you develop shows in rehearsal and 
you know, you can work, but there's not like comedians work sometimes, you know, three shows a night. They run around town. We, you know, I say they, I don't, you know, that's not my groove right now. But when I lived in New York and I was doing it, you know, I did the same thing. I, you know, ran around town and I booked, you know, as many sets a week as I could. And, you know, you did the sets over and over and you wrote a new line and you tried it later. And, you know, you really learn, you really have to learn comedy in front of an audience. There's just like no other way. You know, and some people start ahead and it doesn't take as long and some people work forever to get to a certain place. But, you know, it's about your conversation with an audience. You can't do it on your own. So, um, you know, I knew I was going to have to do that if I really wanted to be funnier. And I did really want to be. I knew if I was going to be a little funny, I wanted to be really good at it, uh, even exceptional. So that meant, you know, going. But I didn't stop doing one person shows either. And there was a long time where I was doing both comedy clubs and one person shows. And that really was how Uncap happened because I had done the show called Globomania and, um, I was going to, and I had gotten good reviews and stuff, and I was going on tour with it, and I kind of wanted to retool it before I went away, so I booked this night at the Women's Building just as a kind of refresher for myself, and um, and so it was really because I was working both as a performance artist and as a comedian that I was able to discover on Cabaret, and in some ways, on Cabaret does bring both things uh, in because it is a very performance strong comedy night because it's so much about being present you know the best performers are really you know in the moments and that's what it is mm-hmm. oh and by the way yeah and talking about it, it, it is tough you have to do it in front of people you have to do it live and it's pretty much about as naked as you can get uh because i did i took a class and i did it for a while just to prep myself to uh, sing in front of a jazz band because I didn't. I thought if I can get through that, I can get through this. Right. But, <laughs> That's true, but yeah. I remember when I was doing that though, to studying from other people, I read a book by, um, and I believe this lady is a friend of yours, Judy Gold. Oh, and, sure, Judy. I love Judy. Yeah, she's. And I remember she said uh, there was a story where she tells about uh, she went to do something at a club and only two people showed up. So she said she just went and sat down at the table with them, did her act with them at the table, <laughs> and then they took her home and made breakfast for her. So, oh, <laughs> so that's a fun story. That's so sweet. Oh, yeah, I then, mean, you know, when you I mean, that is really you build some muscles. It is so hard to perform for only a few people, um, but it develops your ability to understand that it, it you know to build a kind of intimacy with an audience and i mean it's almost harder to perform for two people than two thousand people mm, i bet um <laughs> i would think so um also by the way speaking back to uh sex in the city it, it might have been a quick quick shot on will and grace but you had a lot of time and but on sex in the city one of my favorite parts was when they bring the camera in and they're right up to you. You kind of looking at at him and you think, what does she think? You know, like you're looking at me, I'm looking at you. Yeah. Yeah. I love what, you know, what's hilarious about that is I, I haven't, I didn't, one of my acting teachers, I, I took this one, like, you know, cold reading acting class and his big note to me all the time. And I really did learn a lot from him, but he was always telling me, you know, you're acting with your eyebrows. Stop acting with your eyebrows. 
And then the hilarious thing is that there is this giant reaction shot, which is just eyebrows in that show, which makes me laugh every time. Which is like, you know, you never know, but it just makes me laugh. And by the way, too, before, also, well, I want to make sure I get to this. And you know, Beth, I've I've, I've had uh, decades of herding dogs, so if you want to change the change the topic anywhere, I'm easily herded. And no, I'm, not- I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy. I just, you know, what ends up happening? I've done, I've talked about this book so much, and we end up talking about uncab, but because that was the big decision in the book, and I'm always uh, wanting to say, but the book is really about decision making. I want to say two things. Uncabbery is still very vital. We are still going very strong, shockingly, all these years later. Uh, we've been through so many iterations. We've had residencies done every, you know, work in every medium. And we're still, uh, we started, you know, we're still doing uh, live shows. We're now monthly, not weekly, uh, in Los Angeles. And we're Zooming, uh, which is there for everyone. And we pivoted to Zoom shows right at, um, as the pandemic, you know, started. So we're March 2020, we started Zooming. And those shows are, you know, their own thing. They really have their own flavor. And uh, we were able to work with people who weren't in LA, which I loved. And we have audience now all over the world because they're, uh, they're up for a one week watch window. And um, that's so exciting to me. So there's that. And we've always got new uncapped stuff happening. Um and then the book itself, which, you know, I do talk about decisions that are within Uncap, but, you know, the book itself is about decision making. And I talk to people about decisions in work, love, spirituality, moving, and um, family. Did I say family? There's always one I forget. Uh, and I just, you know, it was it's such a interesting thing to figure out what an original audio book is. And I, there was one really nice review that was like, um, and it's been very, people have really been loving it, which I'm, you know, is so heartwarming to me because I worked on it for a long time. And uh, people are saying it's very helpful, actually, in making their decisions, which I love. And I love what you said that, you know, you're going back and listening to stuff, not a wasted word. That That's so sweet. But, um, but you know, I, I told my story uh, about all the decisions in UNCAB. I talked about family and how UNCAB really functioned as a family and not having children was a decision that led to UNCAB. I talk about, you know, the fact that it was on Sundays and spirituality and how my spirituality grew through it. I mean, there's a lot of different life covered just through the lens of this because I've done this for, you know, enough years that it was a big part of my life and it was a way to uh, focus. But I talked to people. You know, I talked to so many smart, funny people. I mean, the list of people in this book, you know, Judy Gold, you mentioned, but um, Julia Sweeney, Isaac Mizrahi, Margaret Cho, Bob Odenkirk, Alex Edelman, Byron Bowers, uh, Baron Vaughn, Sandra Bernhardt, uh, you know, just like name after name of people. You know, Jen Kirkman, I just really was looking for the people who are funny, 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 that's funny, uh, who are funny, but also introspective people who had stories and would want to really talk about decision making in their lives. And it was really thrilling to have these conversations and sort of find the threads that followed um, along in each of these big topics, work decisions and 
And one thing that I've heard from a lot of people was one thing that they really loved about this book, which I hadn't even really, you know, it's funny, you make something and you're like, oh, I, that's, I didn't, that wasn't, I wasn't really, you know, I hadn't really thought about that, but, you know, I naturally do look for performers who are willing to be open because that's what's interesting. But I heard from a lot of people um, that because the performers were so vulnerable about their own decisions and what might be considered mistakes, that uh, it was really encouraging because, you know, from the outside, it just kind of looks sometimes like successful people are just like doing it right and making all the right decisions and not indecisive. And, you know, you really see going through this book how, you know, you do the best you can. Mm -hmm. And every decision is just part of this, you know, part of how it unfolds. And it's not going to always unfold in a way. I mean, I remember I said to Bob Odenkirk, you know, well, I mean, your career. And he's like, my career I mean, go look at my IMDb, which I already have, of course, but, you know, it's true. You know, he was like, I did a lot of, you know, guest spots on sitcoms, sometimes for friends, but sometimes I really needed the money. And a lot, you know, and I started directing commercials because I had a family. And, you know, we don't always see the whole story. When we look at other people's stories, we tend to look at the brightest parts because that's what's really made the most noise of. And, while this wasn't a project to say, like, how did you fail? Um, it is a project that encompasses both. Because I think it's important to look at the successful decisions, too. But people looked at both things, both the successes and the, you know, so I'll say so-called success and so-called failure because it's all part of, you know, a life of learning and growing and becoming who you are and sharing who you are. So, you know, that's something I really want people to know about the book is that, you know, it's a, it's a place to, um, it's a place to, you know, it's like always, almost was like a safe space. You know, and by the way, I wanted to say too, for people listening, uh, I know there are people that are messaging and they're saying they're listening to the show right now. Um, if you have a question or, or comment, something you want to ask Beth, I'm sure she'll be happy uh, if you call. The number is 646 716 to, to, or if you're in a situation where you can't call, uh, maybe you're at a job, you can always send me a message on Facebook through Jennifer Modet Perry or Madam Perry Salon. And before, uh, also I want to talk about your next, uh, your next class coming up, but uh, one thing and so you need to decide, you began talking about uh, the words aside and decisions and things that happen. You start going back. I know from taking your uh, class last year that etymology is a very important thing. I do love etymology. I just love it. You get to the root of it. It's so geeky, but, um, you know, we use words and they have like, I'll be like new agey about it. Like words have a vibration and we use them without sort of thinking about it. And one of the reasons I look at the etymology of words is because I think that um, when you look at, like, the root of words, and even the word root, I mean, it, it speaks of, like, growth and seeds and, you know, words kind of grow and mean different things. And so, the you know, and that's, that, that's the sort of, it always interests me because I, I often find if I look at etymology of something like today, I was looking at the word security and, you know, what it means and secure and, you know, the cure and the cure and the caring and, 
you know, what, you know, so you think about security and guns and, you know, what the world we're living in and, and, and what is it anyway, that's what we're talking about today. Today we're talking about decision making and the word decide um, is actually a super violent word, which we don't think about. And the side part of it is to cut off and it is related to the words that are like um, suicide and homicide and, you know, these, this whole group of words. So um, I think one of the reasons we have fear about decision-making, and we do have fear, I mean, we're many of us afraid of making a mistake, not being perfect, what if I make the wrong decision? That is something that holds people back in decision-making a lot is the fear of the wrong thing. And part of it is the violence in it and the fact that once you do decide, you can't, you usually can't, you know, you can move different ways but you generally can't go back. And so there is a fear about that, that violence, the violence in it. And, um, yeah, I just really encourage people to be brave about decision-making. You talk about my class and, you know, as a sort of addendum to this, I, I try to uh, get people to understand that, you know, there are really eight habits in creativity And if you fall short in any one of them, it's going to really show up in your work. And uh, there is an order to them. You know, I knew what the eight were before I could figure out the order. And somehow the order, after doing this book, I realized that decision, making a decision is number one in these habits, followed by actually starting, then three, facing the fear, four, changing, five, believing in yourself, six, consistency, seven, listening and receiving, and eight, um, knowing yourself. And, uh, you know, I can talk for an hour on any one of those. But to to start with deciding, you know, it doesn't happen once either. You know, you decide about a project. You decide to um, you make a decision to put a project out. You make a decision about who you're going to work with. You make a decision to sit down and write each day. You make a decision, you know, any single day that you're going to, you know, that you work, which should be, you know, almost every day, you decide, you start, you face the fear. I mean, there's always fear. You sit down, people think, oh, you know, great writers don't have fear. Great writers do have fear. They just don't care. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just whatever. I mean, yeah, it might be bad. Who cares? And then you have to be able to change things and revise. And the whole time you need to believe in yourself. You need to show up consistently. You know, I can go down the list every time, but always beginning with decision-making. So if you're weak in decision-making, the whole process becomes, uh, almost impossible and creative people especially I mean Jen we're living in a time of decision overwhelm I mean you know this your listeners know this I mean we're all we're making like I mean, I, I googled it because you know I'm not a scientist and I was like well what do people say and you know it was like we make 135,000 decisions a day or something like that is what they say and I don't know how they counted. Do they count like when you move the toothbrush from one side of the mouth to the other? It's very suspect to me what they could, you know, would have to put in there as a decision. Like, oh, I decided not to speed up when I'm driving down that street I know. I don't know. I mean, what counts? Right now I'm deciding, like, not to straighten my hair out while I talk. I don't know. You know, Jen, what counts? But, um but nevertheless, you know, we are overwhelmed and it's a really hard thing for creatives because our whole jobs 
are just, you know, is, you know, invested in just, I mean, you know, when you're singing, you know, you're going to improvise. That's like instantaneous mm-hmm. decision making every minute. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have to, in some ways, um, I counsel people to like put some stuff on autopilot. I mean, it's sort of like the, what's his name, you know, Steve Jobs thing about, I mean, I have a mm-hmm. lot of uniform. I don't have one uniform. It's not always black, you know, but I have, I kind of have a performance uniform and I have some, you know, I have various uniforms at various times. So I don't have to think about that where I used to love having a million different things. And what am I going to wear? And, you know, like who has time anymore for that? And, um, <laughs> I mean, I was, I go to yeah. get my nails done, even though I feel like I'm such a DIY diva. I feel like I should be churning my own nail polish. But uh, I'm not. And they always go, oh, my color. And I'm like, white, obviously white. I've been getting white for ever, since I've been coming in. Never another color. Now it's this big joke, you know, white. I'm like, yep, white, that's it. No more decisions, no decisions there. But I still haven't decided to give away my box of colored nail polishes, which I used to use. Maybe I will today. You know, I think I've heard, and I never can remember what is Gen X, Y, Z, millennial, whatever. But I remember hearing people uh, reading uh, certain generation uh, younger would say, you know, I have a uniform. It is maybe a certain kind of pants and shoes and a T-shirt and a hoodie. And that way I don't have to waste time making a decision of what I'm going to wear every day. It's going to be the same thing. I thought, well, all right. You've just uh, taken care. They won't be standing in front of a closet like me waiting for something new to materialize that wasn't there yesterday. <laughs> uh, yeah. Or at least when I had to work in an office, I did that a lot. Um by the way, yeah. I got to tell you, there's a quote I wrote down. You know, the thing is, <clears throat> there is not only so many decisions a day and, and the uh, history of the word, but one of the fascinating things for me about So You Need to Decide is the different aspects of decision making. And that you have so many people who come in and tell their stories honestly and beautifully, like uh, Isaac Mizrahi, uh, Sandra Bernhardt's up there, and... Um, and here's, here's, here's a quote. I had to stop and write this one down. Uh, we all get the tools that were meant for us. And mm. I'm trying to remember whose story that was from. I'm like, who said that? That's a good one, yeah. 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 It's in the family chapter in the, within the first, I think the first hour, hour and a half of it, um, about things that people go through and experience. And even things like deciding not to, like somebody, uh, the, the guy that every time he went to a therapist, they kept talking about, you know, uh, something was wrong with him. He had a mental disorder, um, being homosexual. And oh, Tim. Hom- oh, God, Tim is so funny. Tim yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, even the guy that said, uh, no, that's wrong. But until you can take off your clothes in front of me, you won't be cured. You know, something's that yeah. like, okay. Um, but then I, Isaac Mizrahi being told, you know, don't worry about telling your dad. In fact, just don't do it. It'll be okay. It'll be better. Right. And, you know, that's a, that's a compassionate help, helper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to make it. You're not having to turn away from your truth. But, yeah, some things are made well, you know, look, your truth isn't, you don't have to, you know, it's it's a really fine point is um, rigorous honesty. Even if you decide to live rigorously honestly, that doesn't mean that you have to spray your truth all over everyone. 
I mean, mm-hmm. even your family is not necessarily up to, you know, rigorous honesty with people who have rigorously honest ears. You know, there's a beautiful phrase, you know, for people who have ears or this is for the people who have the ears to hear it. You don't, you know, you don't want, you know, pearls before swine and uh, you don't want to waste your breath and all that. You can be honest without being, um, you don't have to say everything, you know, you just don't, you, you have to protect yourself and your honesty and you have to, there's no one answer for everybody. You have to understand who your family is, who your friends are, you know what I mean? It's like, you're not, he's not choosing somebody as his friend who he can't be honest with. You're born into a family and it's not necessarily the kindest or wisest thing to just tell every single thing about yourself to your family. Yeah, and um, and, and moving on, thinking about Uncabaret uh, and the decisions you make when you when you do comedy, I guess, and when you're live, and even if you've got your, you know, you've got your tight ten, whatever, fifteen, twenty, and sometimes you change things uh, depending I guess on the audience or the people or what's going on and um, the the TV writer the cartoonist uh, I mean comic writer uh, Brandy Stilwell told me that when she went to see Uncabaret Live a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. um, she said it was not a day she would think of for comedy because that was right. right. It was the day the road decision came Ro- down. Yeah, yeah, yeah oh, the railway. Yeah. And she said, I had no idea. You know, I knew I was going to go, but I had no idea how I was going to. She said, I was amazed. at You know, these people knew what to do, what not to do. They knew how to. They knew what we needed. They knew what our souls needed. We needed to be understood, mm-hmm. but we needed to live and we needed some hope and to, uh, and to laugh at some things. And Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's a beautiful thing. Where can people get so you need to decide? Everywhere, Jen, everywhere. Everywhere yeah. your audio books are. Uh, it's everywhere. It's on uh, Audible. It's on Amazon. It's on Recorded. Uh, it's on, um, you can get it at the library. You know, when you take out Audible books, uh, audio books at the library, you can get it at Libro.com. You can get it at Kobo, you can find links on my website, BethelPetis.com, and um, you can just Google it. It's everywhere. And to be sure, I'll be sharing that uh, BethelPetis.com as well as links to get, so you need to decide on all of my social media, not just Madam Perry Salon, but also Great. Jennifer Thank Perry. You oh, you're welcome. I mean, it's, it's done me a world of good. And then I also want to get it. You've got another class coming up. I know you've only got seven slots. I took it last year. I quit halfway through because you started taking me. I was, excuse me, you didn't take me. I was um, guided to go into certain truths as to why I was doing things and using certain words. I got so I got so into the assignment, Beth. Uh, I can't keep going any further without a therapist to guide me through it. <laughs> <laughs> halfway, like a coward. Oh, my God. I just come back and sat in and listened. Uh, I loved all the people in there, listened to their stories and the way you, the way you structured the classes and so i'll definitely be back in again but yeah i like the way you structure it that you teach us something and then we each bring everybody brought their own project uh to work on yeah and everybody learns from everybody and um yeah you know it's called it's called the infinite writer because you write and your life gets better and your life gets better and you write better and 
you know, writing uh, is the thing that helps us understand who we are. I love that you got so deep that you needed therapy over it. I mean, it, I mean, how great that writing takes you there. I mean, I'm glad, you know, it didn't take you to a dangerous place. But, um, you know, to know your story, I mean, to just know ourselves and to know our stories is almost a prerequisite to being productive in today's culture because we're so overwhelmed with messages from people and stories that aren't true to try to live in integrity and to know your own personal future, as I call it, is um, is amazing. So, yeah, I have ongoing – I usually do one workshop a season. We have the fall one. It's uh, going to start at the end of September. I also work privately with people. I also have a year-long program that I'm going to start beta testing in, I don't know, maybe a month or so, um, certainly not until the fall. But I'm talking to people about that now, and that's going to be working with me for a year and setting some goals and, you know, having a whole year to develop it rather than just four weeks in a workshop. So that's exciting. And um, people can reach out to me and email me uh, about that. And, you know, I'm just starting to talk to people about it and, and see, you know, who to work with, who's a good fit. And I'm excited about that. That's going to be different. Yeah, if you see, uh, also you you give a, you give some love to people once you, you you'll make these announcements like here's somebody I worked with and this is their what they've got coming out and this is their show go see it check it out or read or whatever you know it's like you the baby bird is out of the nest but you're still saying hey look at how good they fly oh my god I mean my students are I mean I've been teaching for a long time and my students are amazing I mean I'll be watching I was watching that J Lo movie where you know, marry me, which I was almost going to watch ironically because it looked sort of like cheesy. And I was 10 minutes into it. And I was like, oh, my God, I love this movie so much. It's so beautiful. And at the end, I was written by one of my former students. I mean, I was so proud of her. I mean, my students are amazing. It's not like the baby bird. So I'm like, you know, begging my students for jobs sometimes. So, you know, we all like we all learn from each other. So, you know, it is what it is. My students are. I've just I'm very blessed with a really, you know, righteously talented group of uh, people who I've worked with. Well, it's um, it's a great thing. So you need to decide. Excellent book. Also, folks, uh, Uncabaret, go get it. See it. If you're live, watch it. Uh, the Zoom. Are some of the Uncab Zooms available on YouTube to watch? There are on our on our YouTube channel. We definitely do have some. Uh, we have some clips, and we have a couple of old shows, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So that way you've got a you've you've got somebody to get you through. If you can't get to Los Angeles, usually sometimes they're uh, you can get them online or or live. And I hope to be I hope to be there soon in person when the next one's there. But. Uh, can't we're, wait, but it we have one on Friday night. Huh? Friday? We're Friday well, night at El Cid. Okay, well, I've, I've booked a client, uh, Brandy Stillwell at Barnes & Noble in uh, Rancho Cucamonga. Oh, in oh Rancho Cucamonga. Okay, very yeah. good. Yeah, Rancho well, Cucamonga. Have a good, and, uh, Rancho Cucamonga, I love to say that. I don't know if that's from that old... Uh, Jack Benny shows or whatever when they have the uh, train and they're calling out all the stops. Rancho Cucamonga. Yep. Uh, yep. But also there's a um, interview of Peggy Etra, the puppet lady from uh, Jim Henson and stuff. Uh, 
she's got another aura, I think, uh, uh, improv show going, probably going to go on that weekend or something. And uh, so I said, I, I, I probably just need to just fly out and just have a good weekend. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jen, thanks so much. It's been so great checking in with you. And um, yeah. thank you so much for all the nice words about the cab and so you need to decide. And uh, I hope people uh, will check it out and take a listen. And Bye, out. folks. Let me tell you, it's a, it's a gift. You give gifts. You really do to people. In the, in the books, this is what you teach us, how you make us laugh, everybody. Oh, my gosh. There's so many people on your show that I have loved for so long and listened to in my car, watch on TV. I would love to see Laura Keitlinger live. Uh, oh, yes. I, I love her so much. Oh, my gosh. She's on the show a lot. Yeah. And just lots of people. But anyway, uh, get the book. I'll be telling people where to get it, and I'll also be sharing information on the uh, the Infinite Rider. And I'm Cabaret, and thank you, Bethel Peters, for coming back to Madame Perry's Salon. I, I am so thank grateful. Thanks for having for me. So much fun. And, oh, thank you. Always. You, you've always yes, got a thanks. home here in the Genie Bottle. And so now, <laughs> now we're going to close with my song, Everybody's Got the Swing. And it is Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.